turn with me to Psalm 134 on page 626. Father God, elsewhere in the Psalms, we, we read that your word is a lamp to our feet. Lord, we pray that you'd come to us today and you'd show us the way. We read that your word is sweeter than honey from the comb. Lord, show us that your word is the sweetest thing of all. That to hear your voice and to know your will and to walk in your ways is the best life. Lord, we come, we pray that you would come now by your spirit and speak to us. Amen. In the mid-1990s, the Danish supermodel Helena Christensen rocked the fashion world. It was at a time when she was all over the place. You could hardly go down a British street without seeing Helena Christensen somewhere. She was the face of Dorothy Perkins at the time. Her body sold underwear exclusively for Playtex and Victoria's Secret. She'd starred by that stage in a number of high-profile pop videos and had been dating Michael Hutchins, the lead singer of In Excess. So here we have Christensen, one of the most beautiful women in the world. And she caught everyone on the hop by announcing that she was bored. Bored with her fame. So bored, in fact, she said that she planned to give up modeling for good. Now, it's a good decade or more since... Uh, since she said that, and as far as I know, uh, she is still modeling, but, but she's clearly given us an insight that even though she's at the top uh, of a profession uh, well-known all across the world, she, she'll admit herself she was bored. Now, she, it seems, isn't the only one who struggled uh, on a hard journey, has reached the goal, and has discovered that the, the goal is somewhat disappointing. Madonna, uh, you'll all know Madonna, one of the world's wealthy elite. She was talking about the wealth that she has worked so hard to accumulate, and she said this, the more money you have, the more problems you have. I started out having no money to making, and now I make comparatively a lot, and all I've had is problems. The name Charles Colson might mean something to at least a, a number of members of our congregation. He was the architect of Richard Nixon's 1972 victory in the U.S. election. So for him, it wasn't fame or wealth that left him deflated. It was power. After months of struggling and months of a sacrifice to get his candidate elected, on the night of their success, on the night of the landslide victory, when he was in the place where he thought he always wanted to be, 
he wrote of his experience that evening and he spoke of a deadness inside of me. Christensen, Madonna, Colson, and many, many more people have shared in this common human experience, we work hard for something. And then when we get it, we find out it isn't really what we wanted in the first place. Maybe it's an academic degree. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's a, a rise in our salary and a higher standard of living. Maybe it's a, a, a new relationship. We get what we've always wanted, and when we get it, we discover that we've forgotten why we wanted it in the first place. With Psalm 134, we come to the end of our journey. These 15 Psalms we've been studying this summer from number 120 through now to 134, they're pilgrim songs. They're songs sung by people on a journey. Songs sung by people who are going to God and following him as disciples of Jesus Christ. If you've been here with us, I doubt anybody has probably been here for every single psalm in the series. I certainly haven't. Um, but if you've been here for, for some or most of these, I'm sure you'll have discovered some beautiful lines there, uh, some, some profound thoughts, some challenging words. You'll have discovered that the pilgrim life that's set out in these psalms is a, it's an adventurous life and it's a challenging one. You could say many things about the Christian life, but when you read God's word and when you take it seriously, you realize that one word that you can never apply is, is dull. Life with God properly lived is never dull. It's a demanding thing. It's a moving experience. It's all encompassing. So we have been on the journey now for the last, well, I don't know how long it is, probably about three months. What's going to happen when we reach the end? What's the end of this pilgrimage of faith? What happens when we finally arrive? Will we be disappointed? Well, Psalm 134 provides us with an answer. The people who sang this song for the first time, they, they were traveling, as I've said, quite literally. Try and get that picture into your head. Some of them had traveled maybe for a few days because they lived near Jerusalem. Some of them had been traveling for weeks. Some of them might have taken more than a month to get from a, a remote part of Israel to come all the way to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God. Now they've made it. They're at the journey's end. How, how are they going to feel about that? What are they going to do? Are they going to be like Helena Christensen, like Madonna, like Charles Coulson? Are they going to experience a terrible deadness? inside. We'll look at verse 1 and we'll see the experience of these pilgrims. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. When you look at that, that opening verse, you could read it actually, I think, in a couple of ways. It could be an invitation it could be that the psalmist is saying, come on, praise the Lord. Now, now you're here, you're in Jerusalem, you're in the temple. Come on, join in and praise God. Don't be shy. Don't hold back. It's the sort of thing I maybe do uh, here as I lead worship. I invite people to praise God. I think the psalmist is probably saying, listen, did you have a fight? 
with your wife on the way. Well, don't worry about it, because now you're here. Praise God. Were you shouting at the kids? Was it mayhem in the car? Were they fighting in the back seat and you shouting from the front seat? Is that what it was like? That's okay. Now you're here. Praise God. Are you ashamed of what you've done this week or this month? Do you know that you've been grumbling quite a bit? Do you know that you've been harboring resentment against this or that person? Well, even if that's true, that's not bad enough to keep you from praising God. If we waited until we were perfect, we'd never do it. The psalmist saying, look, you're here. Praise God. So I think you could read verse 1 as that kind of an invitation. But I think you could maybe also read it as a command where the psalmist saying, right, praise God. This is what God commands us to do. I think he could, be, he could be saying to these people, listen, you've made this long journey to Jerusalem. You've made it all the way to the temple. Are you going to sit there now and, and just spend all your time talking about the journey? Or talking about the sat-nav that you have in your car that helped you to find the way? Now that you're here in Jerusalem, are you going to spend all your time in the shopping malls going to see what the latest fashions are? Or, or going to see the sights? Are you going to allow this, that, and the other thing to distract you. I think the psalmist is saying here, if you're a person of God, none of those is your purpose. You only have one central purpose in your life. Praise God. Forget everything else. Praise Him. So verse 1 could be an invitation could also be a command. Praise the Lord. Do the thing for which God created you. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. That's all very well. I think we might be inclined to say whether the psalmist's inviting us or whether he's commanding us. What if we don't feel like it? The invitation falls on deaf ears. A command doesn't help you if you don't feel like worshiping God? What if we don't feel like it? I can't praise God, we might say, if I don't feel like it. That wouldn't be honest. Well, the biblical response, I think, comes in verse 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Now, you can tell straight away that this psalm wasn't written by a Presbyterian. Do you see that? He's telling people to lift their hands as they praise God. This, this guy is one of the, the first charismatics. Uh, I, I haven't now taken the time to, to trace this back further in the Bible. But he's encouraging people to, to lift their hands, to praise God, to use their bodies as they do that. And by the way, I don't often say this or get the chance to say it. If you're somebody who would enjoy using your body more as you praise God, you're very welcome to do that here. Okay? I'm just saying that. Here's your biblical mandate. Remember it. It's okay for... I probably wouldn't be the, the one to be standing the whole time with my hands up, but sometimes I, I find myself moving to the music or whatever. All of that's great because the Lord made us to love him with our hearts and our minds and our bodies. So there you are. 
It's okay to go ahead and do that. Now, I want to think about this for a moment. It's interesting here that the psalmist encourages people to praise God by raising their hands. Regardless of how you feel, you can raise your hands. An expert in a medical field or a physio would tell you that that's a simple motor movement. It has nothing much to do with your feelings. You can do that regardless of of how your, your feelings or your emotions are. You might not be able to command your heart to feel, feel upbeat and good and wanting to worship God, but you can raise your hands. And I sometimes wonder if, if the physical action of raising your hands might not help lead the way. The, the people who, who are able to raise their hands in worship, that they find it actually frees up their hearts to, to follow and be lifted in praise too. I wonder what you think of that. What do you make of the notion, and again, goodness, I I know who I'm talking to here, congregation of Presbyterians and myself. I wonder what we make of the notion that our body has any sort of a role to play in worship. Goodness, stunned silence. Terrifying prospect, isn't it? Well, maybe maybe not. If If you think about it for even a moment, I think this makes total sense And particularly when you take into account that we're psychosomatic beings. Psychosomatic, it's quite a simple word, really. It's made up of two Greek words. The the first Greek word, psyche, meaning spirit, and soma, the body. Psychosomatic, to talk about people being psychosomatic is simply to recognize that the spirit and the body are tied together in a one. That a human being is an integral being. The body and the spirit come together. Although we try to think of them as two very, very separate things, they're not. And the biblical writers are light years ahead of us in understanding this. So I think what's going on here is that the psalmist understands this a little bit. He knows that worship is a physical thing. So when he's telling us to to worship God, raising our hands, I sometimes wonder if being a little more physical in our worship wouldn't actually help us, wouldn't set our hearts freer from time to time. Go through the physical motions of blessing God. And of course, singing, singing, by the way, is a physical motion, so we already do that. I'm not saying that we don't do that and encouraging you to, to start doing it. I'm saying we already do that, but let's allow ourselves to do that. Sing first. Sing when you don't feel like it and see if your feelings might follow. Calvin put it like this. He asked the question, why do men lift up their hands in prayer? Is it not that their hearts might be raised at the same time to God? So let's go back for a second to that person who doesn't feel like worshiping. Most modern people think that the only way to change your behavior is to wait until your feelings change. So This person says, if I don't feel like worshiping, I'll sit at home and I'll wait and I'll wait and I'll wait until I do feel like worshiping and then I'll go and worship. But there's an older wisdom and it's the wisdom I think of this psalm that puts it differently. It says that to change your feelings, why not go ahead and change the thing you can change? Change your behavior. This person says, 
I don't feel like worshipping. Therefore, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the place where people are worshipping. I'm going to be in the place where, where others are active worshipping, where that's the activity. And I'm going to do my part. I'm going to worship God, at least with the physical actions. I'm going to change my behavior, and who knows, maybe by doing that, my feelings will come around too. Actually, I think most of us have probably experienced that, haven't we? We sat at home on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, we thought, ah, I don't feel like it. Not today. And then somehow by quarter to 11, you think, oh, well, you know, I'll go. And maybe it's nothing more than, than force of habit or, or worrying about what people will think if you don't go. You know, they're not great reasons to go to church, but we go. And then when we find ourselves there, just a wonderful thing happens. God's Spirit comes, meets with our, our coldness and our deadness, and breathes new life into us. We begin by doing the actions. And, and before long, God comes and stirs our hearts. Folks, that's happened to me countless times. It's happened countless times through the history of the church. Maybe you're here this morning and that's you. I hope by the time you leave, you might feel that coming along wasn't so bad after all. That God's Spirit met with you and warmed you to worship and to praise Him. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Whenever we come to the final verse, very briefly, there's a lovely wee twist. I don't know if you've noticed it. In the first couple of verses, the psalmist is, is either inviting us or commanding us, whatever of that he's doing. But now the voice changes. He, he's just simply blessing us. He's not telling us what to do. He's speaking a blessing over us. May the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. Whenever we sing this hymn, and we're going to do that in a moment, at first you're going to be singing, inviting each other to praise God, because that's what those words do. The singer invites those around to praise God. But, but you're also going to be blessing each other. Be aware of that when we come to sing. Be aware that this psalm allows you to, to bless everyone who's in earshot. All those in the pews beside you and around you. You speak and, and sing a blessing in the name of God. Folks, I think that's the most natural thing in the world. That whenever we have, we have blessed God that whenever we have opened our hearts to praise Him, it's the most natural thing in the world that we then want to bless other people. I, I don't think you can praise God and bless Him and have a tight, closed heart to other people. I just don't believe that that's possible. God wouldn't allow that. There's no integrity in that, to claim to love God and to be worshiping Him while we're closed to other people. I think this last part of the psalm is just a, a natural outworking of a praising life. May the Lord, 
the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. We're finished here for this morning. A lot of people in our congregation have learned from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, either as children or as young adults. Now, I'll not, I'll not ask how much we remember, but, but if, any, if anybody remembers anything, it tends to be the very first question of the Shorter Catechism. Even I know it. What is man's chief end? What is the purpose of human life? What are we all about? What is the goal of our pilgrimage and our journey? And people who who know the question often remember the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorify and enjoy The irony here, I think, is that some of the people who were best at the catechism were people who would find it hard to convince you that they ever enjoyed anything. Just the the very nature uh, of, of some old staunch religion. But I wonder how good we are at enjoying God. Is that something we are discovering in our lives? That when our hearts turn to God, something wells up in us. A lightness and a joy. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's lots of other things that are involved in Christian discipleship. Working for God, that's important. Suffering for God, some people experience that. Uh, Sharing the good news of Jesus, all of that's important, but it's not the most important thing. You know, there'd be a massive problem in our lives, folks, if we did all those things but didn't do the first thing. If we did those without joy, I think it actually, it belies a a real relationship with God. When we see people trudging around saying, I'm working for God, I'm suffering for God, I'm serving. But there's no joy. You never get the sniff or the hunch or, or even a small sense that they love God and that they love life with Him. That's what we're about. Loving God. Praising Him. Glorifying Him. Enjoying Him forever. The Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But the author of Psalm 134 puts it like this. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary And praise the Lord. Just now we're going to sing together Psalm 134. We're going to sing it actually in a more modern setting. So it's it's hymn number 13 in our hymn book. It's a very short psalm as you can see. So we're going to make a sort of a sandwich where we'll sing it once. Then we'll sing Psalm uh, number 147, which is not on the board there, but it's song number 206. And then we'll sing again Psalm 134, song number 13. If that's all very confusing, don't worry, because it's all here on the screen. Let's stand. Do what, do what our, our purpose and our goal in life is, and that's worship God. Let us praise him.